What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But until that day comes, I am your host, Josh, and I would like to say thank you so much for stopping by. So today we got a little bit of a long one. We're going to be recording to and from my onboarding training for my new job. So I'm going to begin the episode talking about uh, what's going on in Sudan, what's going on also in um, regions all across uh, Asia and Africa and Latin America uh, as they prepare for the Uh, consequences that will come due to the sanctions that are put on the Russian banks that because of the way international trade is currently set up oftentimes are the only ones that are able to subsidize or pay for uh, or give loans to uh, nations that otherwise would not have the funding or the capital to uh, purchase everything that they require. Nations like Russia and China have to play this role because they are not aligned with NATO. They are not aligned with, uh, as many people still think, the Warsaw Pact. This is not the Cold War. Um, China and Russia both are kind of paving their own um, independent path, so to speak, Um in some linear fashion, but at the same time, not necessarily towards the same exact goal. Um, But this is a huge problem for the United States, which since World War II has been the largest capitalist and imperialist hegemonic power, has been the dominant empire across the world, uh, militarily, economically, uh, but also industrially, which is one of the main uh, things that is leading to the decline in U.S. hegemony. Because if we look right now, a majority of manufactured products do not get made here in the United States. We make uh, finished products, some of them, but most of what we make uh, comes essentially just about as... uh, put together as it as it can be and then the U.S. maybe takes two pieces and sticks them together within the U.S. border so that they can put a sticker on that box and have it say made in the United States. Russia supplies natural gas and other forms of energy to uh, a majority of Eastern Europe a majority of uh, the European Union and United Nations states. And so because of this, you have these two uh, growing global powers, economically, uh, militarily, industrially. And the United States, of course, has issue with this because it, it can lead towards its own inability to remain the dominant force on the world stage within NATO, within the United Nations, and so it will run out of opportunities to unilaterally decide and dictate 
what nations are sanctioned, what countries are invaded, which leaders are overthrown or assassinated or replaced through regime change. The U.S. has been deciding that since the end of World War II, and they've done it. They've gone into plenty of countries, killed leaders, overthrown democratically elected governments, arrested protesters, um, trained uh, uh, putschists and, uh, you know, far right-wing forces like in the Ukraine um, and in other places like, for example, uh, in Africa where many of the military juntas and coups which have happened have been led by military officials or others who have been either trained in France, um, Portugal, or uh, the United States, if not elsewhere. And then they come in and they overthrow the government. As we saw in 2019, in what was called then the December Revolution of the Sudan, we saw Omar al-Bashir, who uh, took power through a military junta and overthrew the uh, Sudanese government. Now, I don't know much before 2019, I will be honest. But what I do know is historically, if we look at the African continent, we know that most, if not all, of the people and uh, nation states that were formed were not formed by the will of those people, were not formed in the way in which those people would have wanted because they had no say, they had no choice in the decision process. The arbitrary borders that were created to separate and uh, uh, divide um, land owned by colonizers was not decided through any kind of democratic means. It was decided at uh, a convention in uh, Europe where European uh, colonists and ruling class uh, powers came together and drew up the map of Africa so that they could each have their own little slice of the pie exactly how they wanted it. And so if this is the history of any and all of these countries in Africa, then we can understand why today Sudan would be going through the uh, time period it's going through with millions of people out in the streets demanding change. So because of this, we know that there is a level of popular... uh, Uh, interest at play, which often in nations like, say, the Ukraine, are not given the space that they need to, because there are genuine popular sentiments in these places, in the Donbass region, in Crimea, in Kiev, there's genuine popular, uh, you know, resistance to Uh, the Ukrainian government, to uh, imperialism, to NATO involvement, to the United Nations and the EU's involvement. But because the ruling class has been so capable of co-opting power, co-opting the media and education, They have been able to paint the Ukraine and Eastern Europe 
in their own light however they wanted it to be painted. But if you go into the global south, I find that this is a much more difficult, albeit not impossible, but a much more difficult feat for white Western Europeans to come in and to be the only faces you see on news media, to be the only ones you see in office, to be the only ones you see in power, to be the only ones you see getting to decide how the economy is ran. There's too many contradictions at play for Africans, for uh, Latin Americans, for folks from the Caribbean, for Asian folks who have had human history, have had, you know, ancient civilizations that have spanned thousands of years, whose history has never been fully lost as much as the colonizers have tried to erase it. And so because of this, these places like in Sudan, they are able to form genuine resistance movements that don't look like many others. Now this is this is something very impressive. Um, throughout uh, Sudan, five thousand two hundred uh, resistance committees have been set up uh, across nineteen different uh, locales and municipalities, where essentially you have community and neighborhood leaders organizers, activists, a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses, a lot of, you know, uh, healthcare and uh, first aid responders, such as the Central Committee of Sudanese Doctors, have been set up all across the country. Now, the reason why this is impressive is because you have had full-blown military repression against these protests to the point where Approximately 85 people have been killed since 2019. Somewhere near 1,000 plus have been injured, uh, or excuse me, 3,500 plus, of whom nearly 500 are still in critical condition being treated. And yet amongst all of this, you have, again, 5,200 resistance committees, but you also have had protests such as the recent uh, protest by the elderly and, and uh, the older generations who came out in support of the youth, came out in support of the revolution, were out marching on the streets in droves the other day. Now, since 2019, since the coup, there has been plenty of demonstrations mass movements, mobilizations, which have gone on to be coined the March of Millions. Now, they have been able to carry out consistently somewhere near like 20 of these mass mobilizations as the police and the military forces are out here firing live ammunition into crowds. They are still coming from all different directions, coming from all different areas, each of whom are coalescing in the large cities of Khartoum, 
and elsewhere, but especially Khartoum where the uh, uh, president's palace or uh, uh, essentially what we have as like a, a White House type gig is. And they're going down there amidst fire from, you know, DSHK machine guns, which for those of you who don't know, those are the machine guns that you see in war movies and in video games that have the stand. And they got the two little handles on the front that kind of look like, um, like you know that one uh, workout machine where you sit down and you, you pull the, the cord and it pulls the weights up. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, <laughs> that's incredible because, wow, was that an awful description. But that's what it looks like. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a um, stabilized and uh, it's a tripod machine gun. Um, so because of this, you know, obviously a lot, a lot of people have gotten hurt. At this last March, nine people reported gunshot wounds. Um, and, you know, this is also uh, kind of tragic to report, but a 15-year-old boy was killed. Um, um, and there was another who was killed as well, but it, I didn't see anywhere in the article... Uh, their name or, or their age, but amidst all of this, right, the resistance committees have called for nine more marches of millions this month, starting today. And the people are responding, man. Like, here's the difference is we... You know, folks like me go on social media and we're like, you know, we got to build these anti-war movements. We got to fight against imperialism, we gotta take down capitalism, and then there's nothing, there's nothing in the streets near me, unfortunately, because I'm not putting in the work to build it, you know, and and because of that, we need these committees, we need these neighborhood and community groups, we need these, you know, leaders and and these, these revolutionaries to really assist in building this mass mobilization which cannot be built of its own accord will not come into action just out of thin air there's contradictions and realities and material conditions yes that will eventually create some kind of conflict but to be able to move that conflict towards what the Sudanese people are doing fighting for a true uh, civilian democratic government um that is the difference they released uh on february 28th the cartoon cartoon excuse me i I gotta over enunciate so it doesn't sound like i'm saying cartoon cartoon coordination of resistance committees released the charter for the establishment of the people's authority So this is incredible. I mean, I didn't actually get a chance to read the whole thing. um, But it seems that the charter is looking for a full transitional government. Which will place civilian leaders and groups such as the resistance committees. And the mass organizations which have, you know, sprouted out of this movement. 
in power, not only to be able to, you know, decide how they want to begin organizing their new society, but also to hold these military officials, these generals, these politicians accountable because people have died, right? People have, 85 people have died, 3,500 people have been injured in the course of two to three years. This is not the only place where this is happening. This is happening in Yemen, where the Houthi movement was recently declared a terrorist organization by the United Nations Security Council member states, which is an absolute sham. The same thing is happening in Palestine, where the Palestinians are being labeled as terrorists and as violent. The same thing is happening in Nepal, right? Where recently a $500 million grant was given to the uh, Nepalese government by the U.S. uh, corporation Millennium Challenge Corporation. Now, I don't know nothing about this group. So, you know, I got to do a little bit of research. But it seems that the MCC is an organization set up to essentially do like austerity politics, do reorganization, do neoliberalism. So because of that, it genuinely seems like the MCC is going to try to go into Nepal and reorganize their economy, reorganize their uh, resource extraction, reorganize their workforce, and begin the process of neoliberalism, which has occurred all across the world and led to immense destruction of lands, immense enslavement and forced labor and poor treatment of millions of workers and exploited people within these nations. It has led to a siphoning away of the wealth and resources of countries like uh, Nepal, which then will be incapable of developing further for themselves, except through private contracts with private corporations, which are only in place to make a profit. The All-Nepal Independent Student Union, the All-Nepal Peasant Federation, recently joined with the Communist Party of Nepal and the Unified Socialist Movement, the CPN-US as it's being called, to begin struggling and organizing around this, to begin protesting and demanding that these Uh, governments be removed from office, that these loans and uh, private, you know, grants be uh, denied, because what this does, as I said, is it takes any and all wealth accumulation that happens through the process of resource extraction or, you know, forced labor or other imperialist and colonial practices And it gives it away to the oppressors and the exploiters. 
meaning that any and all of the money, any and all of the technology, any and all of the knowledge and the skills that could be used to build infrastructure, build hospitals, build schools, build houses for people in Nepal will go instead to the U.S. corporation MCC. On the 16th of February, over 100 protesters were injured in a demonstration against this as it was coming to the fore. They were shot directly, head-on, with tear gas canisters and stun grenades. They also were shot with water cannons. They were beaten with batons by police to the point that a few people succumbed to comas because of the lack of oxygen that was getting to their brain as they were being beaten senselessly by police. Now, these are protesters who recognize the reality of what privatization and neoliberalism have done across the world. And what happens to them? What is it that capitalism does to convince them that they are wrong? It does not take its time to educate them It does not take its time to restructure itself so that uh, funds are redistributive so that, um, you know, resources get to who they need to go to rather than who's going to pay the prettiest penny for them. And they're beaten. They're shot with tear gas and stun grenade canisters. That's what capitalism and imperialism does because to its core capitalism and imperialism is a repressive reactionary and exploitative mode of production now why is this happening who knows anything about nepal very few people in the us right well this is happening because nepal is landlocked right next to the the uh, ch- right next to China and is of strategic interest as are uh, regions such as Taiwan where the United States just you know against the, the Chinese government's wishes and asks sent a delegation to um, Taiwan that is but Nepal plays this role as a bulwark, uh, uh, a possible Ukraine situation, right, for China. Because not only is there a land border with China, but also this is one of the countries that has signed the Belt and Road Initiative with China that is intending to, uh, you know, develop using uh, Chinese technology, using Chinese uh, loans, um, very similar to a lot of regions throughout West Asia, North Africa, and Eastern Europe. Because this is, this is the way the world is being forced to go. Because China produces everything. So because of that, Nepal, you know, plays a, a, a semi-strategic role. Not because the United States really gives a fuck about Nepal... Same way with the Ukraine. Not, it's not like the U.S. is, is going to go to war for Ukraine. The U.S. doesn't give a shit about Ukraine. The U.S. gives a shit about fucking everything up 
for Russia and China to create political instability so as to allow for economic inequality and other forms of corruption to fester so as to uh, proceed a regime change which they have tried in Georgia, which they tried and, you know, in some ways successfully uh, did in Ukraine, um, as they've done in many nations across the world. They create political instability in Iran. They create political instability in Syria. They create uh, political instability in Afghanistan. And then they fund any and all, you know, reactionary, religious... um, uh, repressive forces. They might go on to fund some quote unquote radicals and, you know, give them guns, give them bombs, give them U.S. military training, and just essentially sick them on the people of these nations. That's what's happening in Nepal. That's what happens in the Philippines. That's what's happening all throughout West Africa and North Africa. That's what's happened historically all across uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. And that's what's happening right now in Asia. Because as Barack Obama spoke to in his administration, as Joe Biden would have an interest in because of this, they are making what is called a pivot to Asia. Europe doesn't produce anything. Most of Europe's military and economic power also comes from U.S. banks and private corporations and military contracting companies. So because of that, the U.S. really doesn't have too, too much strategic interest in Europe other than the fact that they're a part of NATO so that if and when war does happen, they all got to go to war with Uh, the U.S. against whoever the U.S. eventually decides they're going to throw their hat in the ring against. But the U.S. will wait as it always does, as it did in World War I, as it did in World War II, as it did in Vietnam, as it did in Korea, as it did all across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. It will wait until it realizes that the reactionary and repressive forces that it is paying off, that it's funding, that it's training, are incapable of winning and fighting the conflicts for themselves because at the end of the day, what the U.S. wants most is to not be affiliated, not be connected with the crimes being committed, not have to, uh, you know, answer to the um, different criminal courts that are in existence, which they don't have any legal uh, binding agreement to be beholden to, but which they do... Uh, The United States does have military legislation in place that if any of its uh, generals, soldiers, politicians, etc. are to be put on trial at The Hague, which is one of the more famous uh, international criminal court systems, um, if that were to happen, the U.S. government has in place legislation that will invade the Netherlands. They will invade the Netherlands in order to free their boy because they don't want to be beholden to the war crimes that they've committed and continue to commit. So considering all of this, considering the fact that there is a general election coming up in November of this year in Nepal, 
considering the fact that, you know, Nepal really doesn't want to get caught up between the U.S. and China. The Nepalese people, uh, of whom there has been genuine revolutionary movements, uh, uh, has stated quite clearly that it, it simply wants self-determination. It doesn't want to be beholden or a bludgeon between uh, different, you know, hegemonic powers worldwide. It wants to have its own national security. It wants to have its own, you know, state uh, production, state industry, state, you know, uh, energy. It wants to have control of its own resources. It wants to have control of its own military force, its own uh, political uh, parties and, and structures. What can we really see is at play here that brings us to think about what also is happening in the Ukraine, what also is happening in um, regions all across the globe, uh, happening in Palestine, happening in Yemen, happening in Indonesia, happening in um, Pakistan, happening in Afghanistan, happening all throughout Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean. How can we draw a parallel? How can we draw a comparison? How can we contrast between the different forms of repression and exploitation that have become tantamount to the U.S. empire's very existence? Well, first and foremost, we must clearly have a correct analysis. And by that, I truly mean a correct analysis in that your facts are correct. Um, This is not always simple. This is not always even, you know, necessarily 100% possible, especially as we are seeing right now during a time period where ongoing conflict is engaging all over the world. Um, it is not necessarily the easiest thing to expect in nations where, uh, you know, international news sites are bombed. Like when Israel bombed Al Jazeera and Associated Press uh, news headquarters, that was an intentional attempt by the Israeli settler colonial state to make it even more difficult for people to have consistent, clear, concise, and correct information on what's going on across the globe. This is not an accident. And this is one of the most important things that we need to really get a grasp of. I, you know, spend some decent time on social media. I argue with people, um... I don't spend too much time doing it like I used to. I mean, I really fucking used to love arguing with people on social media. Um, I used to get a kick out of just pissing people off. I still kind of do every so often, especially liberals. But I also realized that a majority of those conversations that I was having 
were not amounting to anything. Oftentimes, it was just leading me towards a lot of anxiety because now I got all these different people who are, like, from my hometown who hate me, hate the shit that I have to say because I'm a fucking communist. I had my fucking drug dealer slide up on my story and tell me that uh, he was, like, I put a picture of Lenin on my uh, Snapchat story and I was, like... um, you know, <laughs> it was like, uh, communism is going to win and I don't really care what anybody has to say. So I don't really want to hear any arguments. I just want you to know that, uh, when socialism comes, like I'll be here for you. And if you need anything, feel free to reach out. And this kid who I know that may or may not allegedly, you know, sell drugs to a person who then sells drugs to me. <laughs> Um, he slid up on my story and he was like, oh, is this the same communism like Lenin's gulags that killed 30 million people? Or is this the same communism that's like the Chimer Rouge? Is this the same, uh, um, communism as Pol Pot in Cambodia? And like, I, I said to him, I was like, you know, it's clear you, you have your own pre-existing uh ideas about socialism about communism it's very clear that you know you grew up with propaganda i told him i grew up in a very evangelical conservative uh household where i thought a lot of the same things and then i took the time to educate myself to learn about um you know, socialist projects that are ongoing and that have happened all across the world and what they've been able to do. Um, And in doing that, I became a socialist. You know, I didn't mean to. I started reading this shit to see what it was about because I was told my whole life, communism is bad, communism is bad, socialism is bad. But nobody told me why. Nobody gave me any true reason. They just told me. Well, because, you know, look at all these bad things that happened in the Soviet Union. Yeah, well, who caused them? Was it the Soviet people who caused the inequality, the invasions, the bombings, the mass starvation of the Soviet people? No. Why would exploited and oppressed people go on exploiting and oppressing themselves? Of course, it can only be in this scenario those who do the exploiting that can be blamed for the exploitative and oppressive, you know, realities that oppressed and exploited people have to endure. I mean, that just makes sense, right? So we're looking at Sudan. We're looking at Nepal. We also should be looking at Yemen. We also should be looking at Palestine where uh, settler colonial mobs have been going in to Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem as well, where, uh, you know, just a lot of death is happening. A lot of people are being killed. Um, and a lot of people are being killed really for uh, oppressive and uh, reactionary reasons. It's not as if, you know, Palestinian people really serve as a threat to the Israeli state at this moment. I mean, you look at 
the fact that Israel is going in there with fucking mobs, dude. Mobs. With, like, fully armed fucking, essentially gangsters going around in Israel just killing Palestinian people. And then you got Palestinian fucking children picking up rocks and throwing them or slingshotting them at tanks and, you know, riot uh, uh, cops. How the fuck, how the fuck can we look at this situation and say, well, neither side is right. Neither side is the good guy. What are you talking about? Neither side is the good guy. I can quite clearly see who the good guy is. I can quite easily see who the good guy is. It's the Palestinian people who are fighting for their lives, resisting for survival. It's the Yemeni people and the Houthi movement that is fighting for sovereignty, self-determination, that is going to win, that is going to free the people from the repressive and reactionary forms of, you know, uh, exploitation that they have to endure. It is the Sudanese resistance committees and the Filipino New People's Army. It is the uh, North African, West African peoples who will bring a new world to bear, who will bring society forward. And it can only be through resistance. It can only be through mass campaigns of protest, mass demonstrations against the ways in which people are being oppressed and exploited today that will succeed in overthrowing these exploitative and oppressive systems tomorrow. This is the only way. This can and always has been the only way. Because when reactionary and repressive regimes massacre, starve, enslave, and exploit people all over the world, there is only one thing, there's only one way that people will be free. This is through resistance, and this is through revolution. So we must understand here that globally, there is a movement that is taking place. There is a genuine mass mobilization on every continent, in every corner of the United States, that is, or of the world, excuse me, that is growing, that is developing, that is learning, that is dialectically, uh, you know, uh, progressing in its zigs and its zags, in ups and downs, mistakes, failures, successes, and, uh, you know, correct movements come through learning, come through growing, come through building, come through organizing. So we can't expect that this is going to come instantaneously. We can't expect that these movements are just going to take over. What we can expect is that these movements will never stop. These movements will never stop growing. These movements will always, always, always be a part of the reality that we are living today. So now the time has come. Will we side with the oppressed and exploited peoples that the U.S. empire 
has destroyed, has enslaved for countless, countless, countless regimes and generations? Or will we be the people who finally say enough? Enough is enough. We will not allow for this to continue. We will not allow for people to be oppressed and to be killed. We want freedom. What will we say, folks? What will we do? Hmm? That's up to us. This question, this reality that we have to confront, that we have to take on, that we have to change, it's not a simple one. None of this is simple. None of it is ever going to be simple. Not only the complexities that come with the ongoing nature of conflicts that are being engaged in all across the world, but also the fact that a majority of these conflicts are funded, uh, armed, trained, and informed by ruling class governments, which, as we know, offer absolute, uh, absolutely no control, no uh, decision-making powers, absolutely no uh, um, access to true and accurate information is guaranteed whatsoever. So because of this, we really have to understand the severity, the necessity for building, organizing, growing, and creating forms of relationality, organization, political parties, internationalist groups that are capable of putting on a front, putting up a barricade, and resisting the oppressive and exploitative practices of these ruling class governments all over the world. We've talked a lot on the show about the Ukraine and Russia and what's going on over there right now. We've spent a decent amount of time covering it, trying to break it all down, giving you whatever updated information that I have access to. And I feel that it's important that we continue to have discussion about this, that we continue to fight back against the mainstream narratives and information that is coming out, that we continuously put out, you know, content and quality information so that, you know, the few 60, 70 listeners that I get have a continued ability to learn more and to uh, absorb more information so they can have a better picture of what's going on here. Because I don't think any of us are going to get the full picture. I don't think any of us, unless we're there in the Ukraine, which I don't think any of us who aren't there already should be heading there. But if we're not there in the Ukraine, we really are working with secondary, you know, 
sources, all the information we're getting is secondary, which means all the information is subject to interpretation, bias, and other forms of misinformation. What we need to do is continue to educate ourselves about the history of regions like Ukraine, Palestine, Yemen, West Sahara, North Africa, Afghanistan. We have to do the material analysis of the national ethnic groups, of the religious practices, the cultural and tradition, the cultural and traditional ties, the land practices, the resource extraction. We have to learn about the colonial history. We have to learn about the imperial history. We have to learn about history and fights for independence. All of this, all of it, can only be understood through a lens of historical and dialectical materialism. Now, what that means is not some fancy schmancy language that you could just throw on top of this and say, I'm right, I'm a Marxist and I told you to use historical and dialectical materialism, you can't tell me I'm wrong. But you actually have to use historical and dialectical materialism to dig deeper. So that's what I've been doing. I've been listening to, reading, and researching just about everything that I can to do with the history and the struggles that have taken place not only over the last eight years in Ukraine, but the last 80 years all throughout Eastern Europe. So we have in these regions, right, what we commonly hear called the former Soviet states, what we commonly hear referred to as the Balkan states, and Eastern Europe in general, you have a buffer zone that was originally created over time to stand guard against West Europe, America, and Eastern Europe and Asia. In the same way that we have barriers states between ourselves and Latin America and the Caribbean. The same way that Europe has buffer or puppet states in Africa and in Asia and have historically for countless generations so as to protect themselves and ultimately assert their dominance over the minority population as well as the exploited and oppressed people in general. During the period of time from 1917 to 1991, the Soviet Union stood strong against capitalism, 
stood strong against imperialism. The Soviet Union gave money. It gave military protection. It signed treaty deals and trade deals with some of the poorest and most exploited regions in the world. I'm thinking here of Cuba and the Caribbean, of Africa, and of Asia, where... You know, I will admit, in Asia, the Soviet Union was lacking, because by the time a lot of these Asian nations um, were fighting for self-determination and independence in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, the Soviet Union was waning, was under immense pressure of the Cold War, um, was having internal contradictions, um, and globalization also, let's remember, had taken place advancement of technologies and of, you know, mass production and consumerism had become the slowly but surely main phase of the commodity sale nations, such as the imperial core nations, where they sell, you know, the fully produced commodities rather than having to buy it back after selling all their resources and stuff away for other countries to make it, the United States gets to sell the commodity. So, since this consumerism took place from East Germany over, even into Russia, all throughout the former Soviet Union, this Inclination towards, for example, cars, shopping malls, TVs, um, you know, fashion, jewelry, uh, apparel of sorts, right? More consumerist goods, right? They began to really take precedent over necessities. Because the extreme consumerist nature of the American, European, Canadian, Australian, and other colonial or imperial empire markets was what the corporations were pushing for. So, of course, they're not going to stop pushing at this or that parallel. And ideas and wants and media and, you know, consumerism perpetuate far further than any, you know, maybe necessarily conscious or explicit attempt to spread them. We all were kids and saw for the first time, you know, for me it was those G-watches or whatever. You remember those, like, um, plastic stretchy watches that were like, um, I don't even know how to describe them. Then, of course, it was iPhone, you know, iPod, iPad, but also like, you know, clothes, Nike, Gucci, well, not even Gucci, more like Nike, um, Hollister, shit like that. Y'all remember when, like, that first kid that you noticed had something that you really wanted, had it? And all you could think about 
all you could do is ask your parents or ask whoever, like, I want this. Even if it was something stupid like, I don't know, like a shitty necklace or something. Like, uh, every boy that I was friends with, particularly, had an obsession with gold chains. And at a certain point in our life, especially if they were fucking Italian, gotta have that golden horn, boys. Anyways, they, they'd have, they'd have a gold chain. So for a period of time, you know, I wanted a chain. So I went over to Zoomies, <laughs> bought myself a $40 fake plated chain, and I wore that shit like a motherfucker. Why? What does $40 worth of fake gold on my neck do except for literally put a chain around my neck? Mm-hmm. But I wanted it. And I had to have it. I had to have it. That's the same thing that happened to the Eastern European nations all throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s was they were seeing the mass expansion of the consumerist economy in Europe, in Af- or not in Africa, in Europe, in America, in Canada. And so they wanted it, it to some extent. But more than that, they wanted an end to this constant global conflict, which very few of them had any real stake in, other than the fact that they knew one way or another they were probably going to go to war or get bombed. It wasn't the people of the Soviet Union that wanted to go to war with any other people of the world. It wasn't the Soviet Union or the people of the Soviet Union that, you know, wanted and sought out this consumerist economy. It's capitalism and imperialism that created the conflicts that happened throughout the former Soviet Union and its surrounding nation-states. It's capitalism and imperialism that created, manufactured, produced, incentivized, sold, distributed consumerist goods and commodities and overtook economies, industries, production capabilities, and completely co-opted and enslaved them. So from this point forward in Eastern Europe, and especially nations like the former Czechoslovakia, Poland, the former Yugoslavia, you have a lot of incredible internal conflicts which are just being fanned. And the flames are being, uh, you know, having gasoline poured onto them from every corner by these capitalist and imperialist nations in Europe and in the Americas. So, let's focus in on the Ukraine here, particularly for a moment, and then we'll wrap up with some political education. In 1945... The Ukraine was used because it has the largest landmass border with Russia for the Nazis to invade the Soviet Union. After the civil war in Russia, many of the Mensheviks, many of the pogromists who were, you know, uh, 
uh, how do I want to say this? People that were going around killing other people for religious, cultural, or ethnic reasons. And a lot of the former ruling class also made their way into places like the Ukraine, Poland, Czechoslovakia. So just keep those two things in the back of your head. The Nazis invaded through the Ukraine. Many of the reactionary and repressive forces after the civil war in Russia, which led to the the success and the consolidation of the revolution, fled to Eastern Europe and Europe and America. Many of whom would go on, such as the former generals of Russia, to aid intelligence organizations like MI6, the OSS, CIA, FBI, USAID, and plenty of other forms of, quote, humanitarian aid organizations of how, when, where, who, and what will make Russia collapse. Since 1917, Russia has been in the crosshairs of the U.S. empire. Since 1949, China has been in the crosshairs of the U.S. empire and of Europe. So bringing it forward a little bit, you have multiple different famines, multiple different uh, conflicts that have happened since 1917 in regions all across the Soviet Union. Because you have over 180 national and ethnic groups that are trying to come together and build one form of governance, the people's government, the dictatorship of the proletariat all throughout Soviet Union, together. Where has that been done successfully? Very few places. So, of course, yeah, there was conflict, there was contradiction, there was mistakes made. But the Ukraine consistently has been used as a linchpin, similarly to Poland, similarly to Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, to destabilize and further advance NATO and the United Nations control in these regions. In 2008, Georgia, which is a nation within the Russian Federation, where Joseph Stalin was from, decided, or I should say their government decided that they wanted to be a part of NATO, that they wanted to sign off their industry, their economy, their resources, and their people to the EU, the United Nations, and NATO. Russia said, hey, no. Because what has NATO been, historically, for Russia? It's been a bulwark for capitalism and imperialism. NATO, which is, by every historical example... An offensive allegiance was formed before the Warsaw Pact 
therefore could not be even claiming itself as a defensive allegiance, has consistently tried all throughout Europe, Latin America, Africa, and Asia, throughout different committees, organizations, militaries, and public governments, to overthrow democratically elected, self-determining, sovereign nation-states and their governments, co-opted their economies, enslaved their workforces, captured their resources in their markets, dominate over their media and education systems, and siphon all of the wealth, all of the control, all the administration over the energy, the oil, the production, the day-to-day lives of millions of people worldwide into the hands of few ruling class representatives and organizations across the world who want not equality, not egalitarianism, but profit. They want profit. Do you know why the United Nations, the EU, and NATO do austerity policies in regions like Greece and elsewhere? Because that, in effect, gives the United Nations or NATO full control, full administrative control of the banks, of the markets, of the trade, of the transportation, of the commerce in all shapes and forms. Not only through sitting in positions of power, but also through backing by their own currency the economies of these nations that are being invaded. Why is it not an invasion or an occupation when NATO takes over 14 Eastern European States that they swore they would not. Now, I know people want to say, well, this was an illegally binding agreement. Fucking, who cares? When you tell someone, hey, I'm going to show up at five, isn't it a huge dick move when you don't show up at five? You need to sign a fucking paper to be held responsible for that, to be told, hey, you should probably be true to your word. And on top of that, why don't we give a fuck about legal agreements. They signed the UN Charter. The United States signed the UN Charter, which means effectively nothing. They signed the Geneva Convention, which means effectively nothing. They break those laws. They break those rules every single day. The United States has the largest weapons manufacturing companies, which provide over 30 nations, including Saudi Arabia, Israel, and other oppressive regimes uh, across the world with nukes, with helicopters, with stealth equipment, with drones, with fighter jets, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, and plenty of others are the economic base to the U.S.'s war economy. This is why $798 billion goes to the Pentagon. Not because we need it. Not because they're going to divvy it up for groups and organizations that, you know, 
will use it for peace discussions or anything like that. But because we owe Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and others billions of dollars for fighting our wars, for building our guns, for selling our, our, you know, rockets. They go and they give us guns and weapons and shit. We fucking, you know, watch as the U.S. Empire goes all across the world, massacres people with it. Then they take the resources, they give them to the oil extraction companies and the banks and the corporations and the United Nations and NATO. Then NATO signs legislation and international accords that allow for Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and plenty of other nations to get away with what they're doing to not be beholden to international criminal court. And then if and when this fails, countries like the United States will unilaterally sanction or invade, occupy, and, you know, enslave nations that don't follow suit with what it wants. And then, in doing so, clear the way for the weapons manufacturers, the military contracting companies, and the industrial corporations, the banks, to come in, suck up all the resources, suck up all the jobs, suck up the markets, the economies, the production systems, replace the governments, replace the media corporations, replace the education structure, Replace the military, train the military, arm the military, fund the military. All for, according to the United States, democracy. Now this is the last thing we're going to finish on, is some political education about the word democracy. Democracy, it's a funny one, it's a funny one. First of all, I think the go-to quote is, you know, from Lenin when he's talking in the proletarian revolution and the renegade Kautsky about Kautsky's description of democracy versus dictatorship. This idea that having a simple majority is democracy. Well, what is democracy when we already do have the simple majority? I mean, working in exploited people, hey, we're the majority. Ninety-something percent of people all across the world have no way to survive except for working, except for selling their labor force every single day. You're not going to get health care. You're not going to get rent. You're not going to get food. You're not going to get a car. You're not going to get clothes. You're not going to get an education unless you're out here working a job. That's the majority of us. But yet we're not in charge, which means a democracy is a sham. Because that's what we have. We're told we have a democracy. Now, there's two ways you can take this. There's the most common way, which would be saying that, well, this isn't actually a democracy. It's a democracy in rhetoric, but not in deed. And yes, I agree. However, I think our, characteri- our characterization of that takes words to mean exactly what their definitions are. Whereas words are more contextual. Language is, uh, you know, experience and time-based. 
it is uh, not linear. The word fascist, the word fascism, the word capitalist, the word capitalism has not meant or looked the same in every place, in every period of time, everywhere, historically everywhere it has been. Which means that democracy, as a word, as a system, can't be so rigid that we look at America and say, well, this isn't a democracy. Let me explain what I mean. This is a democracy. The question is, who is a democracy for? Because, for example, if we look at the people who led the charge for a democracy, the small shopkeepers, the land surveyors, the landlords, the bankers, the company owners, the businessmen, the military generals, the politicians, the sons of oil and other industrial oligarchs, they get a say. Their vote matters because their vote comes with millions of dollars. And they also get to be elected and go into positions of control and administration and decide for themselves how they want things to be run. That's a democracy. That's a government for the people, by the people. The question is, who are the people? In this system, in capitalism and imperialism, according to the historical and systemic forms of democracy that have taken place, the people constitute the wealthy ruling class. So it's a democracy for the bourgeoisie. It's a democracy for the exploiters and the oppressors. Or, as Lenin says, as I love to say, it is a democracy for the slave owners, whether they go by that name now or not. Democracy, under capitalism and imperialism, exists for those who are in control under a capitalist and imperialist system. The capitalists, the imperialists, the militaries, the large corporations, the banks, and others who support them. This is a quote-unquote democracy. But then we must say, okay, of course it's not a democracy, because a democracy in any real way, in any real form, when we have a uh, clear class analysis, is a democracy for all, for the majority, everyone, equally. But of course... That would never happen under capitalism and imperialism because when has anything ever happened equally and for all under capitalism and imperialism? I want you to think of one example. One example where everyone involved in this or that business, this or that industry, this or that process of production or consumption or distribution benefits equally from the profits and the power and the production that comes from capitalism and imperialism. You can't. Because they don't exist. So, actually, because I didn't really get to finish up on Ukraine, you ought to check out the Finnish Bolsheviks, The War in Ukraine Explained on YouTube. You should also check out By Any Means Necessary, who recently, because of this conflict and because of the way the U.S. Empire is handling it, has seen their news station, Sputnik News, that they, you know, uh, uh, record with and for, be banned internationally with RT. 
um, the United Nations even saying that this is okay. So, of course, as we know, freedom of speech is dead. It's never existed for us. And because of that, Spotify, Spreaker, and other corporations have removed by any means necessary from their feet. we got to be behind these folks. Jackie Lukeman and Sean Blackman are comrades, 100%. They have taught me more than I can say. And they continue to teach and organize and help many, many people all over. That much was clear on Twitter when Jackie and, and Sean and them announced that this had happened. On top of this, um, you should check out this video, or I should say this podcast called uh, Why the Ukraine is the West's Fault uh, by East is a Podcast. So, to finish this up, been 14,000 people since 2015 plus that have been killed by Ukrainian ceasefire violations. It's been 2.5 to 3.5 million now uh, people that have had to leave their homes, their lands, their generational, you know, cultures and flee into Russia, into Eastern Europe, into countries where African immigrants and refugees from the Ukraine are being told no. Black and brown people from Palestine, from Africa, from Latin America and the Caribbean have been told no. From Afghanistan, from Syria, from Iran, from Jordan, from Lebanon, at the Polish border, at the Slovakian border, they've been denied in Germany, they've been denied all throughout Europe, they've been denied in America, they've been denied everywhere except for Russia, historically, up until this point now where all of a sudden Poland is letting in, and so is Slovakia letting in um, Ukrainian immigrants, giving them health care, giving them uh, uh, vaccines if they want them. Um, they can even bring their pets. But God fucking forbid, you know, any Caribbean or Latin American immigrants be granted the same here in the United States. No. ICE and the concentration camps that are led by the fascist uh, private prison corporations and the military contracting companies continue to enslave, uh, sodomize, uh, divide, and destroy uh, women, children, men, uh, uh, give forced and uh, unbeknownst to them hysterectomies to women and non-men, uh, keeping them in cages allowing for COVID to spread, allowing for all kinds of sexual assault and other kinds of assault to happen within these facilities. And you got Kamala Harris and Joe Biden going, fund the police. We don't want to fund, we don't want to defund the police. We want to fund the police. Biden signed the 1994 crime bill into effect along with Clinton, and he has effectively been the same person since he stepped into government positions way back in the 60s and 70s when he was anti-desegregating uh, buses, when he was anti-desegregating schools, when he was anti-racial uh, equality. That's been Joe Biden since the very day he stepped into office, but that has also been the United States since it came into existence, since it's, it came to be known as such. The U.S. empire is just that. It is an empire. 
is a settler colonial state here on Turtle Island that occupies land illegally and does so through repressive and fascist uh, means. And it is also an imperial empire that goes all over the world and steals the resources, the land, the labor forces, the knowledge, the skills, the technologies, the uh, markets, the governments, the militaries, and the uh, very core, the seeds of development for nations all across the world. And it uses that to fund its own uh, military occupation here on Turtle Island and across 800 military bases all over the world. So what do we do? There's only one thing. We have to build a movement. We have to have an anti-imperialist, anti-U.S. empire movement here on Turtle Island that will overthrow the ruling class. So let's get building it, folks. Long live the revolution. Long live people's movements. Long live the people of Sudan. Long live the Palestinian struggle. Long live the Houthi movement and the many people. Long live the struggle all across Latin America and the Caribbean. Long live the Cuban Revolution. Long live Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Sankara, Nkrumah, Kwame Ture, Seiko Ture. Long live Malcolm X. Long live the ideas of the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army. Long live the struggle for Chicano, Latino, and indigenous as well as Asian liberation here on Turtle Island and across the world. And let us also say, because it is most important in this time, long live women and non-men's liberation. Long live African liberation. Long live Latin American liberation. Long live Asian liberation. And long live trans liberation. Fuck Texas. Fuck Greg Abbott. Fuck the fascist Supreme Court. Fuck the fascist corporations and banks that give the U.S. Empire, the billions that it needs to continue its oppressive regime here on Turtle Island and across the world. We must fight for everyone all together for one. We need a socialist revolution, and I say that with all the understanding of what that means, the complications that it comes with, and the contradictions that it might cause in your mind, your heart, your actions, and your day-to-day life. If you listen to this show, you know a socialist revolution is the only way to get there, so why aren't you building it? Why aren't you talking to people? Why aren't you donating $20, $30 to your local mutual aid networks? Why aren't you out here learning how to make masks and donating them to people? Why aren't you in your local tenant union? Why don't you go speak at your local town halls? Why don't you knock on your doors? Why don't I knock on the doors next to me? Why don't I? Why don't you? Because we're scared. But we can't be scared anymore. We don't have the time. We don't have the energy. We don't have the privilege to decide for the people, millions and billions of whom are suffering today, that they don't get to see a new world. We don't get that privilege. Socialism or extinction is real and not for nothing. Be a socialist, be a communist, or be extinct. That's a threat. Long live the revolution. Catch y'all later. Peace. Hello. So, for those of you who don't know, it is officially what is commonly termed 
Women's History Month. Now, last month was Black History Month. Uh, what uh, Salifu Mack, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, and plenty of others have recoined African Liberation Month. And I really didn't take the opportunity like I should have to speak to this or to have anybody on to speak to the history of this. So I'm going to try to do better this month, but I wanted to take this moment before the show, before the introduction, to say a few things about women's liberation, about trans liberation, and about the struggle for equality, justice, freedom, and true, um, you know, proletarian uh, equality, not equality simply in word. So women's history, right, is commonly seen as this struggle in a lot of cases as it's painted to us in the U.S. for simple uh, gains, say the ability to work or uh, the right to vote. But what women's struggles have looked like and what struggles for those especially who give birth um, has not simply been about manifesting short-term gains like this. It has instead been a struggle for essentially humanity and autonomy separate of the patriarchal system which underpins our society today. Back before what we had or what we now know as a class society, we had communal societies. And prior to what we know as patriarchy, there was matriarchy, or uh, in terms of um, in in terms of like familial ties, rather than being bonded by your father, you were bound by your mother and by the non-men within your family. This began to change at a certain point when. Uh, society was cleaved into those who have and those who have not. As soon as military forces, um, agricultural practices, uh, and uh, development of, you know, townships, villages, uh, cities, especially, uh, you know, along the line down further, much, much more, the traditional and cultural practices of humans made it so that the men within society were often the ones within these positions with the ownership of the land, ownership of the tools, ownership of um, uh, livestock, etc. And so as society became more predicated on this severance between those who have and those who have not, the matriarchal system began to wane. 
And eventually it was fully co-opted by the <clears throat> establishment of what we now know as the state. A special body or apparatus outside of the organized armed masses that is used to suppress and repress one class by another. This solidified the rule of patriarchy, of economic inequality, of private property and commodities. And this was the seed by which women and non-men's repression and oppression truly uh, took off. So now looking at today, we commonly hear of folks like Harriet Beecher Stowe or um, others that fought for, you know, the ballot. Liberal feminists held up in high esteem as the supposed liberatory force by which the whole of non-women was to be able to free themselves. But yet these same women who were demanding the right to vote, the right to work, the right to own land, had slaves who were women, had slaves that were not men. In many accounts, some of the most radical feminists throughout the 16, 17, 18, and 1900s, even up to today, their want for liberation and freedom and justice stops at a certain point in the color wall, stops at a certain marker, a certain parallel on the globe, stops at their own certain level uh, and, and willingness to see certain people as human beings. And that is what I wanted to speak to today. Women's liberation is not about anything other than liberation for all non-men. That means trans folks. That means LGBTQ folks. That means colonized and imperialized women. That means women formerly trafficked or forced into the sex trade. That means prostitutes. That means disabled women. That means women that don't menstruate. That means women who can't give birth. That means non-men that um, do not have uteruses. That means non-men that cannot find any sort of um, life-saving procedures and medication that is necessary in their uh, locality. All of them not only need to be liberated from this system and be a part of the overthrowal of it, but also need to be given the power, the knowledge, the control, and the economic, social, and political equality to be able to attain every single thing that they need. That is what Women's Liberation Month must be about. So without further ado, folks, that is my little bit of an intro to the intro. So I hope you like the show. 
Um, it, it really has nothing to do with that, but I thought that w- was very important, and I wanted to stress this. So hope everyone is well. Enjoy the episode. Um, 